So we're turning in our Bibles, as Deduzi said, to 1 Corinthians in chapter 11. And we know last Lord's Day, Sid took us through the first part of 1 Corinthians 11, looking at um, men and women in the church. And then we are turning to 1 Corinthians 11, chapter, um, 1 Corinthians 11 verse 17 today, uh, to think about another issue at the Church of Corinth. And this time we're going to be thinking about issues around the Lord's Supper. Now we know that the Lord Jesus, in the night uh, in which he was betrayed, in which he was handed over uh, to be crucified, the Lord Jesus, he took a basin and a towel and he washed his disciples' feet. And the disciples, they were very puzzled that the Lord Jesus would do such a thing, because normally that was a task that would be allocated to one of the slaves or one of the servants in the household. And then Peter, he tried to refuse. He didn't want the Lord to wash his feet. And the Lord Jesus, he said to him, you don't understand what I'm doing now, but afterwards you will understand. And then Peter, doubtless after the cross, looked back on what the Lord Jesus did and realised the significance of what the Lord Jesus had done in washing his feet, in showing his selfless love in such a way. But those words of the Lord Jesus to him doubtless could be written across many of the events in our Christian lives, especially as new Christians where the Lord Jesus, he takes us through things like baptism or the Lord's Supper. And in our young experience, he would say to us, you don't understand what I'm doing now, but afterwards you will understand. And so as we grow, we start to understand the importance and significance of the things that the Lord Jesus has given for us. And in many ways, it's like the way we raise children. We teach them certain habits. I teach my children to wash their hands before their meals teach them to eat all the food that's given to them, uh, teach them to go to bed at a certain time, certain habits that get them into a certain way of living. And doubtless they protest at times and say that they shouldn't have to do it, but the very habit is a way of teaching them something important that they then start to understand the significance of. Washing their hands teaches them about food hygiene and the importance of not getting sick through germs. And in the same way, in the Christian life, we start out practicing things that we don't always have a firm grasp of. We're baptised. And it's only later in the Christian life that we start to then think, well, actually, I understand more about what that was about. Or the Lord's Supper, where we gather together and take the bread and the wine. And it's only after we've done it that we start to realise the full significance of what it's really about. And the way that um, these things work in our lives is the, way that, the same way that habits work in the lives of children. It's the habits themselves that provide the foundation for understanding certain truths later on. And so when we come to the church at Corinth, Paul has already said to them in chapter 3 that he has to treat them as mere infants, mere babies in Christ, because of their immaturity in various ways. And that becomes quite apparent when we look at what's happening at the Lord's Supper that we're going to look at today. Because um, what we discover is that what they were doing at the Lord's Supper, it wasn't even really the Lord's Supper. They just completely misunderstood it and its significance. So Paul has to call them back to actually think about, well, what is this that we're doing? What does it mean? And then start to think about how that actually applies in very practical ways in their lives. Because what seems to have been happening is that instead of gathering together to have the Lord's <laughs> Supper, they turned it into a bit of a private meal uh, where some of these probably richer folks were sitting down, they were celebrating it themselves and leaving others 
um, whether they came later or whether they were eating elsewhere, they just weren't celebrating the Lord's Supper together. And Paul has to call them back to unity and say, you need to recognise what this is about. You need to recognise the significance of the Lord's Supper. And then a text for us, a text like this for us, um, as for all believers, becomes really important because it teaches us what the Lord's Supper is all about and teaches us to treat it with the value and significance that it really deserves. So then, with that, uh, with that um, preliminary thought, let's look together at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 17 and hear what Paul says to us. And he writes these words to the Corinthians. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences or divisions among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further instructions. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's ask God to bless that word to us this morning. Gracious Father, as we have just celebrated the supper, and to turn now to your word where the Apostle explains to us the significance of it, grant that we would grow in our understanding, that we would appreciate the love of the Lord Jesus Christ for us all the more deeply, and realise the practical ramifications that it has for how we live. We ask these things for the honour of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus. Amen. One of the fundamental problems that the church at Corinth faced was that there were many divisions among them, and we've seen that from the very outset, Paul having to deal with these divisions. And they really lacked the unity that was supposed to be the mark of God's people. And in this section, what he's doing is he's pointing to the Lord's Supper and saying that actually that should be something which shows your unity 
and they had turned into something which had divided them. And so in the, the first little bit, verses 17 to 22, Paul, he rebukes them and says in these verses, look, you're going about this the whole wrong way. It's not even the Lord's Supper that you're celebrating because it's so divisive. So then in verses 23 um, onwards, uh, he explains that the Lord Jesus had set out very clearly what the Lord's Supper was and how it was to be celebrated. And so we've got a description of the Lord's Supper in 23 to 26. And then having described it in verses 27 through to 34, Paul then, he warns them that if they don't celebrate the Lord's Supper correctly and continue with their abuses of the Lord's Supper, then they're going to experience the Lord's judgment. Indeed, some of them had already experienced the Lord's judgment, but they need to take this warning to heart Otherwise, they're going to continue to fall um, under the, the anger of God. So then we return to verse 17, where Paul opens by telling them in no uncertain terms that he's got nothing good to say about what they're doing with regards to their meeting together to receive the Lord's Supper. And he says that actually their meetings, they do far more harm than good. And elaborating on this, he says the problem is basically their divisions. He says, of course, in verse 19, that division isn't always bad. Sometimes division sifts out who's actually genuine and who's not genuine. And he uses the language of approved and disapproved here. He's not saying that this somehow weeds out better Christians and worse Christians. The language of approval and disapproval in Paul regularly refers to those who are genuine and those who are false. And in a way, this comes across as a warning. And he's saying to them, look, if you're dividing amongst yourselves in the celebration of the Lord's Supper, take care that those divisions that you're introducing aren't actually a mark that you're actually false. And so this is a very stern warning. And it's not a light matter that Paul's dealing with here because he, he wants them to take to heart what he's saying about the importance of the Lord's Supper. And so with that opening shot of how serious this is, he continues to speak very severely about what they're doing. And so in verse 20, he basically says, you might think you're coming together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, but when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Doubtless, many of them thought they were doing the right thing. They were saying, you know, this is what the Lord has given to us. This is what they're doing. And Paul comes along and says, no, it's not that at all. You've got completely the wrong idea. And what you're doing can't even be recognised as the Lord's Supper. Why is this the case? Well, he says that it's because when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. And to understand this, you need to understand a little bit of the context of how the early church celebrated the Lord's Supper. Because typically it was associated with a meal. And the background of this was obviously the Passover, because on the night when the Lord Jesus instituted the feast, they were celebrating the Passover, the disciples. And they would have had the Passover meal, and at the end of that Passover meal, then the Lord Jesus Christ, he took the bread and the wine and instituted the Lord's Supper as something separate. But the way that that continued on into the early church seemed to be that they would have a meal together, and then they would celebrate the passing of the bread and the wine in a symbolic way. So they had this meal which was generally associated with the way that they celebrated the Lord's Supper. What was happening then at Corinth was presumably some of the richer folk were having a nice big meal together and the other poorer folk who didn't have all this sumptuous food to bring were being excluded from the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Now it's not exactly clear what the precise problem is and it depends how you translate certain words here. It could be 
that the rich people aren't waiting for the poorer people and they're going ahead. That's one way of translating it. But it could also be that they're just excluding the poorer people and not letting them join in the, the celebration. Whatever way you translate it doesn't make much difference. It's neither here nor there because the point is the same. The way in which they were celebrating the Lord's Supper was exclusionary. It was cutting the poorer, lower status members of the congregation out of the Lord's Supper. This was something which was actually fairly common in kind of Greek or Roman society. That if you got a big communal meal, the, the high status people, the elites, would sit together. And then the, the poorer, lower status people, they would sit elsewhere. And to some extent this continues to the present day. There's certain communal meals that you might go to, maybe a wedding or something. And all the important people will sit in one place and all the, the, the less important people will sit by themselves and you get these kind of divisions introduced. Now the problem with Corinth was that this had then been imported into the church and the way they were celebrating the Lord's Supper was cutting people off. And so Paul says in verse 22 that they were humiliating those who had nothing and by so doing they were despising the church of God. They were treating it with contempt. So he says if they want to have a big meal with their elite friends, then they should do that at home. But it's got no place in the church of God. You can't have these status divisions. And so we see then that there are these major problems at the church of Corinth, particularly with regards to how they were celebrating the Lord's Supper. And the issue then is one of division and disunity. And so severe is the case that Paul says that um, they distorted it so much that it couldn't even be recognised as the Lord's Supper. It wasn't recognisable. In the next section, Paul's going to come with to a solution where he's going to explain to them the way that the Lord's Supper had been delivered by the Lord Jesus Christ so that you would be able to put them right. But before we get to thinking about how it needs to be put right, we need to have a think about this problem of disunity and division and think about how that might apply to our own context today. Because underlying all that Paul says here is this vision of the body of Christ as a unified body of believers. We are one in Christ. And of course in the next chapter, chapter 12, Paul's going to explore that in more detail. He's going to talk about that, the body, each individual member of it, how it's vital to the functioning of it. But that idea underpins everything that Paul says throughout Corinthians and throughout this chapter as well. We are individually brought into this single body of Christ and are brought in through nothing other than sheer grace. And we maintain our place in the body of Christ through the sheer grace of God. And so in this body then nobody can boast that they are better than somebody else. Because we are all individually, through grace, members of the single body of Christ. And since we are members of that body, there is one single head. And we've already thought about it in the first part of chapter 11. And that single head is Christ. He is the head. He is the preeminent one. And he is the one who occupies all of our attention. Because... He is the one who has shown this grace to us. And what the Corinthians then were doing were undermining all of that. No longer was Christ the head. They were trying to exalt themselves. No longer were they trying to uh, value one another, but they were treating their social status as something which was of great importance. But how does that, how does that relate to us today? And I think you can get to the, that kind of problem in the church today when you see cliquishness emerging in, in any kind of form, when you get certain members of the church banding together because of some sort of shared status and doing things together and excluding others, this is a way in which this actually becomes apparent in many churches today. Now I think at Bensham, I think we try to maintain unity and I certainly don't see this kind of cliquishness. 
But we've got to constantly be on guard that this kind of thing doesn't happen because it can happen all too easily. Now, to be sure, there's some people in a congregation that you're going to be closer to than others, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. It becomes a problem when it becomes a way of excluding others, where people see themselves as better than other groups, and they start to band together and other people feel left out. And that's not the way that the body of Christ should function. And at Bencham, then, we need to ensure that we value every member of the body of Christ and work and serve together, because otherwise then we end up with the same kind of problem that we had at Corinth. So Paul's solution to this issue of division is to call them back to the true meaning of the Lord's Supper. If they could understand what the Lord Jesus had given them to practice, then this habit that the Lord had given them, this practice that the Lord had given them, would shape the way that they think. And the way that I give practices to my children, and it shapes the way that they think about growing up, so also the practices given to us by the Lord Jesus should shape the way that we think about one another and about how we live under the, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul begins in verse 23 to describe the tradition that he received. I'm not sure that he received this by direct revelation from the Lord. He says he received it from the Lord. That's possible. I think it's probably more likely that he's simply saying that this is something which received from the Lord himself. It wasn't something that the apostles came up with. It's not something that he came up with. It's come directly from the Lord Jesus. And that's the tradition that we can then read about in the Gospels. And the Gospels describe for us how the Lord Jesus instituted this meal. And so the Lord Jesus, after that Passover meal was ended in the upper room and that night before he was taken away to be tried and then eventually crucified, the Lord Jesus, he, he celebrated the Passover and then he took the bread and wine and established this meal that we know as the Lord's Supper. And as a brief aside, the meal goes by various different names. And even in scripture, it goes by various different names as well. Sometimes you'll hear people referring to it as the Eucharist. Other people refer to it as communion. Others, the breaking of bread. And others, the Lord's Supper. And I suppose there's some various other ones. Those are all biblical words, by the way. We think about a word like Eucharist. It sounds very complicated. But it's the word Thanksgiving. And if we turn to the previous chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 16, Paul talks about the cup of blessing or the cup of thanksgiving that we give thanks for. So that's why some people call it the thanksgiving, the Eucharist. Uh, some people refer to it as communion. And again, Paul talks about, in that very same verse, in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, that the cup of blessing that we bless is not communion in the blood of Christ. And so he's saying that it's a, a meal of communing with Christ. And so the term that Paul uses in this chapter is the Lord's Supper. But these are all biblical terms, but that's just a, a brief aside. Paul says that when the Lord Jesus took this, the bread and the wine, he did it on the night in which he was betrayed. And the word betrayed is actually a bit ambiguous. It basically means handed over. And you can understand that in two ways. Obviously, Judas handed over the Lord Jesus Christ to the religious and civil leaders to be tried. But in another much deeper sense, the Lord Jesus was handed over by God himself. Because this was the will of God from all eternity. That the Son of God would be the one who, in our nature, in human nature, would bear our sin on the cross. And so what we see in the Gospels as the Lord Jesus is taken away is that he's handed over by God. God 
is the one who stands behind the work of redemption. And it's not a single member of the Trinity that works for our salvation. But either way, on the night in which the Lord Jesus was handed over, the Lord Jesus, he took bread, gave thanks for it and broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Some manuscripts say this is my body which is broken for you. Whatever the original reading is, is neither here nor there because the point is the same. The point is that the Lord Jesus is giving up his body to be so cruelly treated and to be sacrificed upon the cross. That body that he'd taken on in the incarnation to dwell among us would be humiliated on the cross and and put to death for us. And then he takes the cup after the meal and according to verse 25 he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And again, the point that's being emphasised is the self-giving love of the Lord Jesus. He's not holding anything back. He's giving his body for them. And now he's going to give his blood for them on the cross. And that cup of wine represented his blood, which would be shed on the cross. And in shedding his blood sacrificially, he says that he would bring about a new covenant. A new covenant that would be different from the old covenant because it would deal fully and finally with the problem of our sins. And Paul then says that every time we take the bread and the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We show it. We proclaim it. And that's very significant because it means that this act of taking the bread, taking the cup, is a public act. It's a public and visible demonstration of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an acting out of the self-giving love of the Lord Jesus, whereby he gives himself entirely to us so that we might be saved. And Paul then says that this is temporary. The love of the Lord Jesus is shown in this way until he comes when this demonstration of love will be displaced by the demonstration of love that he shows when he takes us to be with himself. Now there's much that we think about in these verses and much that I will just not mention at all. And the reason for that is because I want us to try and think about what Paul is getting at here. I think there's much that we can draw from these verses that's useful, that's helpful in thinking about how we celebrate the Lord's Supper. But Paul's got a point that he wants to get across. Remember, the driving concern behind Paul's communication of this is the problem of disunity at the Church of Corinth. And so, the first thing that we've got to notice about what Paul describes here is... Like we've said, it's the self-giving love of the Lord Jesus Christ that's really emphasised. And then the act of taking the bread, taking the cup, is a remembrance of that self-giving love. Not the prayers, not the songs. As important and as good as they are, they're not the act of remembrance. Because the Lord Jesus says that it's the cup, it's the bread that is the remembrance. That's what it is. To remember what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. And the point there is simply that it's not something that we do. It's what the Lord Jesus has done that we remember. It's his self-giving love that we remember. So we take the bread. And what it says to us from the Lord Jesus is that his body was given for us, broken for us on the cross. So that we might take it and realise his self-giving love to us. And visibly, it's a tangible sign of his love for us. 
Again, the same with the cup. We take it, and it's a visible sign of his blood shed upon the cross. It's a remembrance of his blood shed on the cross. And whether we take it as a single cup and each drink from a single cup, or whether we take a single vessel and pour it into individual cups, is beside the point, because the point is that that single vessel that we all share in is at remembrance, is a memorial of what the Lord Jesus has done for us. And in both the bread and the cup then, Paul says, you show forth, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so the Lord's death is the thing that we remember, is the thing that we celebrate. And so if the self-giving love of the Lord Jesus is the thing that's highlighted at the supper, then you can already hear Paul's implicit critique of the Corinthians, because he's saying, look at you. You're sitting there celebrating your own feast, you're exalting in your own social status. But what does that say about the self-giving love of the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for sinners? It dismantles that idea of social status. The Lord Jesus is the one who gave himself, and you cannot come to the Lord's Supper pretending that you're somebody important. Secondly, this meal of bread and wine, says Paul, is the church's covenant meal. The Lord Jesus takes the cup and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Now previously in the Old Testament, God had established his covenant with the Israelites by taking them to be his own people and giving them his instructions. But that covenant that God had made was riddled with problems insofar as the people just weren't able to live up to God's standards. The people's hearts had not been changed. People hadn't been changed inside. They were still the same old heart sinners. And the problem with their sin hadn't been fully and finally dealt with. God, God had prescribed sacrifices to be offered that would temporarily uh, deal with, cover over the issue of sin. But it had never fully and finally dealt with the issue of sin. And so God promises in Jeremiah chapter 31, among other passages, that he's going to establish a new covenant with his people in which not only is he going to change people's hearts so that they're going to be different people who actually love him and want to obey his instructions, but he's actually going to fully and finally deal with the problem of their sins so that he's never going to remember their sins ever again. And so then this is the, the covenant that the New Testament teaches that the church becomes a beneficiary of that we're brought into that. And what we celebrate is this covenant meal. And the reason why this is significant for Paul is that if we're now the new covenant community, if we are the people of God brought under the new covenant, then that means our status has changed. We don't derive our status from the world. We are the Lord's people. We've been brought into this agreement, this covenant with him. And so we don't derive our value from who we are in relation to somebody else in the world. We are God's people and we should no longer live according to the standards of the rest of society. But thirdly and most importantly and related to my first point, the person at the centre of the meal is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He says that taking the bread, taking the wine is a remembrance of me. He's the focus. And if we eat and drink to remember him, then that excludes a focus on anybody else, no matter how important they are. It excludes a focus from them. He's the centre. His work is the, one, is, is the work that has saved us. And he is the object of our adoration. 
And so much then for the Corinthians who are trying to exalt their social status by banding together in cliquish little groups and excluding other poorer members of the congregation. Now, like I said, there's much that can be said about such a passage, maybe questions that you don't have, and that's all good. We can chat about those between ourselves. But it's important, I think, to keep in mind the point that Paul is making as he's drawing out this description of the Lord's Supper. Um, Because the point that Paul's trying to make is important for our context today as well, that this supper is a mark of our unity in Christ. We don't take the bread and wine as mere individuals, each individually uh, celebrating our salvation. But rather, as a body of believers, we collectively draw our life from the Lord Jesus and his work on the cross. And remembering that collectively is a collective remembrance of what the Lord Jesus did for us. And it's not about celebrating our success or how we are better than anybody else. It's a celebration of all that the Lord Jesus done for us. How he gave himself entirely for us on the cross, giving up his body, shedding his blood, while we were still sinners, amounting to less than nothing. That's the way he loved us. And that's the way he shows his love week after week. And so our unity that we have is one of collective humility, collective brokenness before the cross, where we say that none of us amounts to anything, but Christ has done it all. And all to him we owe. And as we take it, we take it as an act of sheer grace. And so it's a humbling experience as we're united together around our common Lord. When Paul moves on from this description of the the wonderful meal that we enjoy, he has got a fierce warning that he has to return to. He's already alluded to his concerns. He comes back to that warning and he says that if they exclude other people and continue to do so, they've despised the church of God and are sinning against the body and blood of Christ. And so he says in verse 27, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Of course, some people read these words in an unworthy manner and this causes all kinds of anxiety and they wonder, well, actually, am I taking the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner? They become worried that maybe they're doing it in an unworthy way. But again, we have to understand it in the context of what's happening at Corinth. Because those who drink and eat in an unworthy manner are doing so out of an attitude of pride. They're proud of their social status. They're proud of who they are and who their friends are. And that is the attitude that's being condemned. That's to eat and drink in an unworthy manner. Because the proper attitude at the Lord's Supper is one of humility, one of valuing one another and recognising that we all share in the common life given to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul says that if you are to eat and drink in this exclusionary, prideful way, then you're guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Strong, strong words. I think what he's saying is the kind of religious pride that led to the Lord Jesus Christ being crucified is the very same sin that they are then guilty of. And so it's as if they're guilty of the very body and blood of the Lord. That's what they're doing. And so Paul calls them to examine themselves. 
And again, this has been misunderstood. It's been misunderstood as a kind of call to deep introspection, whereby we introspect and think in on ourselves, have I done anything wrong this week? There's a place for that, don't get me wrong. We ought to always examine our hearts and see if we're right before the Lord. But that's not what Paul is getting at here. The kind of looking inwards that he's getting here, the kind of inspection of ourselves that he's calling for, is an inspection to see if there's that kind of lofty pride, that kind of desire to exclude others. And so he's calling us to think to ourselves, as I'm gathered here at the Lord's Supper, am I thinking that I'm better than other people? Am I boasting in myself? Am I wanting to exclude other people? That's the kind of attitude that he's ruling out and saying, if you're doing that, that's unworthy. That's what you ought to rule out. And he says then that if you eat and drink, in verse 29, without discerning the Lord's body, you bring judgment on yourselves. What's the Lord's body that he's talking about here? He's talking about the, the body of believers. We are the body of Christ. And if you eat and drink without recognising the body of Christ for which he died, then you're bringing judgment upon yourself. And this judgment's pretty severe. He says in verse 30 that many are weak and sick and some have even fallen asleep. In other words, they died because of what's been going on. And he says that if we were more discerning, if we judged ourselves and our attitudes properly, got rid of that attitude of pride, then the Lord wouldn't have to judge us. Uh, and so he's, he's saying to us that God can bring judgment upon us. That's, it's not the same as losing our salvation or anything like that. Not that that's possible. But God can bring severe judgment upon us because of our pride. Uh, because of the damage that we do to the church of Christ. God could take us away from this life simply to stop us from sinning more. Or God could bring sickness upon us so that we would learn to repent. In these different ways, God brings us back to himself and causes us to recognise the sin in our lives. And so verse 33, Paul brings his instructions to a conclusion. He says, so then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Now, whether this is the case, as I said, that some are eating before others and not waiting for them, or whether it's the case that they're excluding others that are there in the assembly, the point is the same that it's an exclusion of other brothers and sisters from the Lord's Supper that is the problem. And instead of that, they need to recognise the fundamental unity of the body of Christ and demonstrate that through their celebration of the Lord's Supper. And so he says if those rich people want, if they're, if they're so hungry that they want to have a big massive feast to themselves, then they should do that at home so that when they come together, they can all eat together. And demonstrate their unity and their common life in Christ. And he closes by saying that he's going to give them further instructions when he arrives. I would love to be able to tell you what those further instructions were. I don't, uh, don't know what they were. I wish I was in Corinth to discover more about what Paul said. Uh, but at any rate, God has given us these instructions written down for us so that we would see the crucial issue that Paul's driving at and so that it would actually be a lesson for us. Now that core message then, is vitally important for us today. The church is a body which is unified and it expresses its devotion to the Lord in the celebration of the supper, but it expresses its unity as well in the celebration of the Lord's supper. Like the Corinthians, we're perennially tempted to be proud of ourselves, uh, to want to group together into little elite groups of people. 
But we need to see that as believers we're united in our dependency in Christ and that's what drives us week after week to demonstrate physically that we are dependent upon him. United, we're dependent upon him. Maybe we're not tempted to actually exclude other brothers and sisters from the Lord's Supper. I wonder, and I was thinking about how this might apply to us today, is a more subtle temptation to actually, for preference's sake, adopt a consumeristic attitude towards the church and say, you know, I, I don't really like this group of believers. I'll go and find other people that I like more, that fit my preferences. And so we, ref we refuse to actually share together in this common meal simply because our preferences can't be, made, can't be met. And to be clear, I think there are legitimate reasons for leaving a church and joining another. And so I'm not directing this at anybody. That should be clear. Um, but there is a consumeristic attitude in today's society whereby people think to themselves, well, if I don't really like these people, then I'm going to go and find a church where actually I do like those people. Or if it doesn't meet my preferences, doesn't sing the songs that I like, then I'm going to go and find people who actually sing the songs that I like. But is that not a kind of subtle way of undermining the unity of the body of Christ whereby we actually meet together and share in the common bread, share in the cup with those that sometimes we actually don't always particularly like but yet we recognise that we all draw our common life and sustenance from the Lord Jesus. And most crucially then related to that point is that the Lord's Supper it teaches us about our relationship to the Lord. But just as it teaches us about our relationship to the Lord, it also teaches us about our relationship to one another. And this is what Paul is really driving at here. He's the, the Lord Jesus is the centre of adoration as we take the bread, take the cup. But that then has implications for who we are in relation to each other. Because we're recognising that we are all members of this new covenant community that have been ransomed by the blood of Christ and that share our sustenance from the death of the Lord Jesus Christ for us upon the cross. That then means that I might be sitting down on Sunday that I don't particularly like. Maybe I, I just don't get along with them particularly well. And the whole point of the Lord's Supper is that whoever we are, we all share in the common grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We all take it together as a recognition that we are one body. And as I look at you taking the, the cup or taking the bread, it signifies to me that you're my brother, you're my sister, who's receiving this grace from the Lord. And I am no better than you, because I don't stand apart from you. I too take that bread, take that cup, in recognition of my dependence upon the Lord as well. And so we all share together in that recognition that the Lord is the one that we look to and that we are then brothers and sisters in dependence upon him. And so Paul's words speak fresh to us two millennia later. Um, the temptations of pride and exclusion, they haven't gone away. They might manifest themselves in slightly different forms, but they're still there. And so a text like this calls us to think about how we can actually put this into practice in our lives, to value one another, to recognise our dependence upon the Lord Jesus, and to reflect more deeply on what happens when we gather together at the Lord's Supper. And as we do so, and recognise our debt of gratitude to the Lord, 
and our mutual dependence upon the Lord, then it deepens our appreciation of what he has done for us and of our love for one another as well. So may God help us to do that as we seek to serve him as an assembly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ instituted this meal that we can enjoy. We thank you that most crucially it speaks to us of his self-giving love. He held nothing back from us. He gave up his own body. He shed his own blood. And this is the depths of his love displayed, not in words only, but in tangible ways. And again, at this meal, we thank you, Father, that he gives us tangible ways of appreciating his love so that we might taste it, so that we might touch it, so that we might know that one day he is going to come again in reality and show his love by taking us to be with himself. But Father, we pray that until that day, you would teach us through the celebration of this meal to look to one another, not out of pride, but out of a recognition that we all share in the common life brought to us through the Lord Jesus Christ so that we might love one another even as he has loved us and given up his life for us on the cross. Grant that you would do this for the honour of the Lord Jesus 